One of the ways to make all lives matter is to fund education in a way that's equitable for all lives. Our current funding model for public schools in America leaves schools in poor and impoverished neighborhoods between a rock and a hard place. And the intersection between classism and racism in this area hits hard on black and brown students. To look at how we fund our schools and explore better, more equitable, more sustainable ways, Dr. Stephen Owens joins us from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. He's an expert in this space, but more than that, he's really good at explaining things. Check him out on Twitter or TikTok if you don't believe me. Better yet, you can hear him now on the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Stephen Owens, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you today? Well, so first off, after a big Georgia win, are you have you come down yet? I uh, it doesn't feel real. I <laughs> I took yesterday off and uh, I was joking with friends. I was like, I am completely at peace. Nothing can stop me. And all it took was devoted fandom for several decades to how teenagers and early 20-somethings are going to perform. It's but I I'm I'm feeling good, I'll be honest. Yes, there, there's a lot of feeling good in Atlanta and across the state. So so congratulations on that. We've been exploring on on the podcast this whole idea around zip code being a predictor of so many things, uh, health outcomes, what the tree canopy looks like in your your neighborhood, uh, your access to transportation, and so many things. Clearly, education would be one of them. And when you start talking about education, we can go super broad, but wanted to spend this time in the area that uh, is, is is of your expertise about school funding, uh, for, for sure, just, just to talk about how we fund our schools and, and what works, what doesn't work, and how did we get here. So let, let's just start, start there. Well, let, let me start before we get to funding with the big picture. As a country and then as the state of Georgia, do we have an idea of what we want out of K through 12 education? Do we know what it means to have a generally educated person that, at that period? Do we have an understanding of that? It's going to change between every single family, every single policymaker. There is this idea, the founding of our country, that the the United States needed strong schools because we wanted to have enriching lives and that's changed specifically when you look into like the 1950s, this idea that we need to compete with another country. Russia, there's this belief that Russia had passed us in STEM education by getting Sputnik orbiting our Earth. And so that's where it really became mainstream. OK, the purpose of education is work, production, national security it doesn't mean that we've missed out on those original ideals, but it just means that we have just a lot of different views on what's the point of education generally, the point of our public funds in public education, to where you'll you'll hear some people talk about the need for critical thinking, having just a strong community uh, versus skills. Is it skills acquisition is the purpose of education just to get a job because if you fall too far on one of those sides, you can start. You can you can feel it nationwide. Okay, what is the purpose of our tax dollars going to this? But I think for a lot of people, it's some balance of 
critical thinking and skills acquisition. So with that very sort of broad sort of set of outcomes, and there has to be some balance in general, are we getting what we want out of it? Money aside at this point, just um, how do we rank ourselves and how do we rank? And, 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 and listen, rankings as a whole, maybe that's even a bad choice, but you know, how do we feel generally about what we're getting out of K through 12 education? There's this uh, consistent thought that the United States is lagging behind other wealthy, industrialized nations. And I get that because when you average out like test scores, especially the ones that can be compared across nations, yeah, we're middle of the road. We'll say top 20, probably 15 to 20 when you put it all average. The difference is if you separate out wealthy kids in America – They perform on par with wealthy kids or above with wealthy kids in every other country in the world. The problem is the United States, how we treat our low income kids and our income inequality. And so, yeah, if you look at just averages, yes, the United States is, you know, falling behind, we'll say some European countries and some uh, Asian countries. But that really doesn't show the nuance of the fact that we have an incredible education system if you're wealthy, yeah, but we're not doing right by our low-income kids. And then just other measures, we'll, we'll hear people regularly talk about our, let's say, low unemployment rate. What if, if the only point of schools is to get kids jobs and we have this incredibly low unemployment rate, then that means the United States is very much succeeding. But if we judge ourselves by how well we take care of our neighbors, for instance, during a pandemic, when we all see the importance of a population that that relies on each other, then you can see some cracks in the way that we treat people and how well we educate kids. Yeah. And I will say that when I first just even paid attention to those sort of rankings amongst industrialized nations, and I would see the United States at 20-something or 30-something or just like these numbers. And I say, how are we comfortable with this? And I, I, without any data, and this isn't my topic, I just got the feeling that we were comfortable with that there may be a population that's sort of dragging the numbers down, but we're okay. We'll we'll worry about that later. We'll catch up later or it just is what it is. I, I felt there was a sort of callousness in the nation about those numbers dipping because it it didn't reflect the story of what some people get out of education. So what some people get out of it, let's let's go to what's put into it and about funding, right? So that's where it starts. How do we fund our schools? What's the funding model? It's unique internationally. So if you look at 100% of all the dollars going into your public school, it's going to change state by state. But it, in all of them, it's going to be a balance between your local property taxes and your state funds. Those are going to be carrying the weight for a lot. So in the state of Georgia, 50% of all your school budgets are coming from the state funds, um, directly from the state. 43% are coming from local property taxes. And then 7% are coming from the federal government. And usually that's in really specific grants for uh, low-income students, students with disabilities, And so in that local property taxes, you've already alluded to it, though, in in those local property taxes, that's going to look incredibly different county by county or city by county. So, for instance, 
I went to elementary school in Clayton County in South Suburban Atlanta. Per kid does not have the local property taxes of the neighbor where I went to middle school and high school in Fayette County, where you're going to have a lot more wealth per kids. And nationwide, we're just kind of okay with this. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're kind of okay with this idea that you can cross an imaginary line and get vastly different educations because the resources that are available in Clayton just are nowhere near with the resources that are available in Fayette County right next door. How did we get here? How did that how did that model come about? How long has that been a thing? Hundreds of years. Okay. The, this idea that like schools were just this product of the neighborhood. And as, as you know, you know, it, it began as this idea that like this is how we are going to train white landowners to become pastors. Yep. And then it continued to prioritize that specific group, even as the ideas and legal requirements for our public schools changed. And so that's that's held on. Some of that is good, this idea of the local school and needing to be in touch with local communities. But this idea that a significant amount of funding should be tied to how much the houses are worth in the area puts communities in disadvantage, especially communities like people of color who have traditionally been kept out of American wealth, yep. are now kind of further kept out by neighborhood segregation and the income segregation that comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. So we we, we did a uh, segment here on housing and the number kind of varies, but it, it's, it's, it's in between a nickel or dime for sort of black family wealth versus that of white families. Uh, I think it was like a dime before a dime for every dollar before the great recession. And now it's at about a nickel. And so when you start talking about 43% of funding coming from local property taxes, that gap then ties clearly spills over into into education and and a lot of times that you're talking about so even if all things were were equal in terms of okay we're just going to give everybody the same amount we're not we're going to level out the property taxes it costs more to fund students coming from high concentration of poverty areas i would assume absolutely no it does it's something that we've known about in the education finance research definitively for 30 years, which is that's the number one challenge for schools, a, a child entering the doors where if you might have a kid with wealthy parents or whose parents have access to a lot of resources, sitting right next to a child who uh, might be food insecure, might be housing insecure. Uh, think about how, how well you performed in school when you had a toothache Yep. And how there are some kids who are regularly dealing with health disparities because of just, again, another uniquely American thing, the idea of uh, allowing our health care to be tied to our work. Yep. And so we've known about this for a long time, that kids living in poverty have a qualitatively different experience, but we can address it in the schoolhouse if we have enough funding. There's amazing research to show the amount that if you increase from the state to these schools with higher concentrations of students living in poverty, then you can you can make up the difference in test scores over a child's education very easily by just providing these resources. For some reason, in education, people are really reticent to put to say that more money will will help things. But we live in a world 
where if you want something, you got to pay for it. Yeah. And, and that means being able to pay for uh, teachers to be able to stay in the classroom. You have to be able to pay for like solid resources, computers, like strong curriculum. It can make a difference in these kids' lives. It's not some hopeless case that once a kid arrives living in poverty, then there's nothing you can do. It would just require us valuing these kids as much as we value their wealthy neighbors. So Atlanta definitely is a tale of two cities. And even we have data that says we we are, in terms of metropolitan areas, we have the largest income disparity, income inequality here in, in Atlanta. What does that look like, though, in, in a school? And I, and I think what I'm, and, and I don't know if you're able to answer it in this way, but if I am a fourth grader in a low-income area versus a an area where the property taxes are higher, what does that actually mean? I, I would assume at both schools I have a, a homeroom teacher to start with, but like, what am I lacking? What do, what what do resources provide? What do, what what do, make it tangible in terms of do, do I have more teachers? Do I have better bus driver? Me better. I mean, a bus driver with fewer tickets. I don't know. What is what does it look like? Absolutely, school districts have a ton of flexibility on how to use the money that comes from the state and from local property taxes. And I did a report on the English for Speakers of Other Languages program in Georgia, and was pretty surprised to find out. Okay, Georgia has a a large pot of money that's going to ESOL students, at least compared to other states. And then when I dived, when I dived into individual school district budgets, though, you find that some of the money that was meant to go to this program is actually going to meet this need over here. So if you're in a school district with a lot of kids living in poverty and you notice that a lot of kids are arriving without having eaten breakfast. Yeah. You have got to take money from, let's say, the classroom, from hiring another parapro, from paying substitutes what they're worth so that you can cover classes, especially if we have teachers calling out due to a global pandemic. And now that money is going to just making sure everybody has breakfast in the morning. If you notice that some kids are going places where they don't feel safe while they're after school, while they're waiting for their kids, their parents to get home from work, then maybe you shift resources towards an after-school program that's available to every single child. It just changes the dynamic. I met with a charter school up in the mountains of North Georgia, asked them what they would do with more money for students living in poverty. And they were talking about just washing clothes, that they felt yeah. like they had a lot of kids missing school because they their clothes were dirty. They were ashamed of it, understandably so. And so they said they would just weekend, every single weekend, offer the ability to wash people's clothes. And so what happens is you got to rob from Peter to pay Paul. And since we know that 70% of all the money that goes into a school goes into the classroom and teacher salaries, there's just so few places you can take from. So that just means higher class sizes. It might mean not being able to pay teachers bonuses. So you get a lot of first year teachers while your more experienced teachers go to a school district that can afford to pay you a little bit more. You'll, you'll feel it in a lot of different ways, uh, school by school. Yeah, I, I will tell you that as a father of three who've gone through public schools here in Georgia and in different zip codes, areas, and, and what have you, I noticed um, even here, so in the city of Decatur where I, where I am, is that even amongst the, the counselors in high schools, there's a much more 
robust counseling apparatus in terms of, and it shows up in terms of if you need to schedule something with the, the counselor, there's a scheduler, right? Like it, it, so the counselor is just doing counselor. Whereas in South Fulton, you'll have a counselor that's doing the scheduling, the meeting. And there even is a distinction between counselors who are readying kids to, for sort of college applications and that kind of thing. And somebody who may be dealing with, you know, something that's more serious problems that like, like you talked about, I'm, I don't feel secure. I don't feel safe coming here. I'm food insecure, what have you. And absolutely. And so I've, I've seen it myself and I've always wondered of just how did, how did we get here? And I think you're sort of explaining is that if you're in that lower income school district, you've got to figure out a way to just plug sort of basic holes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, it's covering holes uh, that, if we had a state with a really strong safety net, if we'd expanded Medicaid, if we provided stronger cash assistance to families that just temporarily need support as they're in between jobs, then maybe we wouldn't have to lean on our schools as hard as we do. Um, I talked to this one teacher who talked about how she needed to wait after school for about an hour and a half because they didn't have enough bus drivers for the limited number of bus drivers they have to do a route, come back and pick up a second load of kids. So they can't afford to pay their bus drivers a wage that will keep them competitive. And the result is now they have a teacher who's completely burned out, who might be very tempted to just go to the richer suburban district that can just make sure that she leaves school when her contract says it's time to leave school. I mean, you'll, you'll feel it in all of these places if there's those differences in, in how much money you have and, and the challenges of the kids that you're serving. Let me, let me dig a little bit on the, on the bus drivers and expand that. So when I think about a school, there's the administration, right? There's the principal support staff and vice principals and various things, there's the teachers, but then there's all of these people that at least for me were really important to right. education, which is the custodians, Bus drivers, cafeteria workers, librarians would, I guess, probably fall in the teacher. Ca- but I think, how are we doing sort of right now, especially how are we doing before COVID and the Great Resignation? And how are we doing now in those areas of the of the full full aspect of, of, of education? So there's the teacher and principal, we get that. But what about those? other roles that play a part. Yeah, it's a great point. I, it, I've done a little research on specifically school bus drivers and monitors and now substitutes and parapros. And one of the things I came across is that there's as many of these staff, we'll call them non-certificated because they, they don't have a teaching certificate. There's as many of these staff in the school building today as there are teachers and leaders. And so like when we talk about a school, we're talking about these folks who are holding together the work of a school, the the first person my son sees in the morning is a school bus driver. It's not a teacher. And it's the last person he sees from the school in the day. And we are now, I would say, feeling the effects, the effects of decades of undervaluing these folks. We're, we're seeing huge shortages, at least across the metro Atlanta area, school bus drivers and monitors, substitute teacher, cafeteria work, these necessary staff. And we're now starting to see just like how poorly these folks are paid, but you can make the case that before the pandemic, we could kind of get away with it. 
that schools could get away with, you know, these really poor wages for substitutes and for school bus drivers, because where, where else would you go? You know, like that's just kind of the going rate. And now we're seeing a shortage of truck drivers nationwide. That becomes a lot more valuable. If you have a CDL and you're driving a bus, yep. it becomes a lot more tempting to leave the school system and make much more, or even if just the Amazon Fulfillment Center is paying what you're making as a bus driver, why would you put yourself driving 70 kids that might not be able to be vaccinated and that are, could be very unruly? That's really that's a really difficult position to put them in. And so I think we're just paying the Pied Piper. Yeah. The, the amount of state funding that's gone to student transportation specifically has gone unchanged in the state of Georgia since Bill Clinton was in office. Wow. Fiscal year 2000. It stays about the same amount, but we've gained 250,000 students. Yep. The price of gas, the price of buses has all gone up. So where where do school districts find that money? They have to pull from other areas. They've got to squeeze their drivers to not be full-time employees anymore and do two half-time shifts. The state required the individual school districts to pay for health, health insurance in 2012. Never made the change after that. I, it's just kind of that same that same song we're hearing, which is like the money's got to come from somewhere, yeah. and so we end up squeezing in all these areas, and now we're we're feeling the effects of that. But it, yeah, it hasn't significantly changed. We're just now really feeling the effects of it. Yeah, and 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 so I would I would imagine, or I want to get your your take on or our understanding of what's happened since COVID. And for for me, with COVID, there's a couple of things that I'd like to to hear hear your point of view on. So we've had this learning loss, right? And we've got to make up for that somehow or another, right? And then just all of the things around, you know, cleaning and social distancing, masking, and and that kind of thing. How are we looking at funding the learning loss or have we even addressed that yet? So the federal government um, under President Trump and then President Biden passed large funding packages that has gone to school. So the state of Georgia in three different bills got almost six billion dollars in federal funds specifically to address just what you talked about. Learning loss, instructional time loss. And I'm not going to, no one's going to hopefully say that that can't be used to great effect because it absolutely can. I know in Atlanta where my kids go to school, it's been a slightly longer school day. They're, they're paying for a slightly larger school day. They have a summer program, which is optional to kids and then required, I think, for some who are falling pretty far behind. There's additional technology. So some of that money is going these ways. But there's also asks, I think, legitimate asks from the community like, OK, what are you going to do about the HVAC system? We're talking millions of dollars that would need it right. yeah. to significantly change the air that our kids are breathing. What are you going to do about our school buses where kids are sitting, you know, three, four to a seat and they're sitting right next to each other? Do we need to buy an additional ninety thousand dollar school bus? And so there, there is this money. But I think that school districts struggle in two areas. One they're afraid of this money not being around in a few years because it won't. It's a one-time funding that has to be spent in September of 2024. Um, so they're afraid of committing to something like school counselors, additional teachers that they can't pay for in a few years. And second, I think they want to make these changes so quickly that there is an absence in some school districts of actually listening to the community on what they need. 
on what what would actually help these kids to address learning loss versus just kind of, okay, how do we spend this money where we get as few complaints as possible? And so that's that's something I've seen, and it's hard. We have 180 school districts in Georgia. That means there's going to be 180 different ways to address it. But we know what helps kids, specifically kids uh, that are struggling, and it is smaller class sizes. It's them being like mentally and physically supported. So we might need more mental health counselors, but those are things that we'll have to pay for every year, not in just kind of these one-time funds. Yeah. What do other industrialized nations do in terms of funding? It's all coming from like the centralized government. It's a, it, it's treated the similar way that you might treat the postal service in the United States. It's this recognition like, okay, you have this many kids, this many needs, then here's your dollar amount regardless our kind of reliance on individual states and then the state's reliance on hundreds, thousands of districts underneath them can be really great for innovation is really awful as far as cementing inequalities. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is that if you're in the Netherlands, then all students are Dutch and we need to educate them in a way that <laughs> that we want or in France, all of these kids are French. These are right. all these are all, all kids who are French citizens or will be French and we'll be adults so in, in that we need to make sure that they get the proper education. Why don't we do that? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean we not to mention our kind of current hyper partisan yeah. environment. Oh yeah. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it is It is wild that we as a nation are just really comfortable with Mississippi having so much less money per kid and Massachusetts just having so much more per kid when our federal government has had such a hands-off approach. But even recently, we've seen the pushback people give when the federal government tries to have more of a role in education with Common Core is that people overwhelmingly in the United States want their schools run locally. The dark side of that is what communities do we consistently want to have less? And by we, I mean like majority culture, like the ruling class. And we know that in America, that's black and brown communities, that's kids learning English. And you can, you can see it in the budgets. You can, you can see who we prioritize and, and, and how we fund. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so one thing I want to go back to real quick is is that, so there was a 43% from local property taxes. And then there's, there's the significant portion that, that comes from state funds and state funds revenue is taxes, right? Right. So is that all of the taxes? So if, if there's property taxes, local property taxes, and 43% of that, that's insane already as, as I begin to, to digest that. And now I'm on a rant because if you think about that, when you're talking about local property taxes and you've got some areas where there's high concentrations of, of renters and what have you, then where the hell is the property tax come from? But let me stay on topic. So state funds, that's um, then the other taxes, I would assume income tax. Sales tax. Yes. Sales tax. Okay. All right. How do tax policy in terms of what we cut, what we keep, what, what we provide incentive to, incentives to, like we here in Atlanta, we've got a wonderful Microsoft campus going up. And, you know, I hear we've, we've given the company all of these incentives to bring jobs and all of these things. So, so how do the other taxes, sales tax, how 
how does tax policy affect this and and where we even may be falling short of where we were 20 or 30 years ago or or are we doing better i don't know right yeah it's it's definitely a balance right like you have this amount of money that the state has that could use in order to increase state services and a population, and this is not unique to Georgia, that absolutely abhors paying taxes, but loves the services that those taxes go to. <laughs> so what do you do with that balance? Uh, in Georgia, we have chosen to consistently balance budgets on the backs of school children, which is to say uh, the state of Georgia has this funding formula that says this is how much every single school should be given for this and we have given that amount only twice in the last 20 years. And it, be- it begins in this spot of saying like, okay, here's how much taxes we're getting. And then there's nothing we can do about that. So we'll just have to cut from the schools because public schools are the largest line item in the state budget. But that's not the way it has to be. We have one of the lowest tobacco taxes in the nation. Mm-hmm. We continue to give billions of dollars to out-of-state corporations through the film tax credit that we have no idea if they're employing a lot of Georgians, is this money that's actually like kind of coming back into the economy the way, because that's the balance is you want to make sure if we're giving tax credits out to corporations and if we're giving tax credits out to individuals, is this something that's, that's lifting up the state? What's our return on investment? And we continue to fall on the side of kind of giving tax credits and not asking anything in return while we let our state services really struggle And you can feel that in the way that we help out kids in the foster care system, our uh, public health system that's struggling. We're in the middle of the worst wave of the pandemic. And the Department of Public Health's website went down regularly yesterday. It just couldn't handle that. You know what I mean? Like this is something that we should be able to to do as one of the wealthiest states in in the wealthiest nation in the world. And so I think that there is some movement, though, bipartisan on just reviewing those tax dollars specifically that are going out in tax and like large tax credits. Like, is this stuff that's actually coming back to Georgia and stimulating our economy or are we just shorting our local schools, our public health, our higher education, just to hold on to a ranking of how good we are for business, for business which, right. <laughs> which we right. hold in very high regard. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and, and if I'm a business, I'm thinking, you know, what's my workforce going to to look like? But something that you just said that I want to make sure I heard it right. So in the last 20 years in Georgia, we funded, fully funded or appropriately funded or met the metric Twice. Twice. Two, two times. We've cut, I mean, there have been five years in a row from 2010 uh, th- through 2014 where we cut over a billion dollars every year. We're currently under a, a $383 million cut to public education. I mean, this is, we've cut $10 billion from public schools since 2003. That's stunning. That's stunning. Absolutely. And well, so what states, wow. <laughs> okay, I, I'm I'm thrown off by that, but but let me let me get back in the game. What what states do it do it right? Where so I mean, it's Arizona, Massachusetts, Mississippi. Who who does this right? And right is in the air quotes for those of you who, you can, who can't see. But who does it well in terms of funding? Uh, a lot of states in the Northeast are in a better spot. Uh, you think Massachusetts, Minnesota. 
California just changed the way that they fund schools to significantly increase that. We've seen Kansas on their way back from just this devastating experiment to try to get rid of state income tax. And then this recognition like, oh, wow, people actually need the services that are paid for through these taxes. Those states are kind of our guiding light. And Georgia has done better than our neighbors, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina. But it still puts us, if we want to have a world-class education system, if we want to keep the Microsofts of this world, the MailChimps, the Deltas, then my understanding of my chamber friends is that they need a strong workforce, just like what you said, who are out of high school, out of college, immediately ready to work. And and that's going to go a lot further in helping a business than like a temporary tax credit to keep a hub somewhere. If you can have the workforce that, that can keep your business running. Yeah. Yeah. One one more question along that, that lines and back to the other industrialized nation. So, their poverty is not unique to the United States, but if I may, and I, I, we said French or I said French in the Netherlands or what have you, but if I am a poor kid or a kid coming in poverty in one of those countries, am I getting extra services or do I have any catch up in those areas or is that kind of? You are, but it's usually happening outside the school. Got it. It's, it's coming from a strong safety net where you're having like a much better unemployment benefits, where you have healthcare, no matter if your parents have a job. And so you are getting that lifted up. And that's, that's the dream for me, at least in schools, is that it doesn't have to be this catch all for social services. Like it's acting like now where it's providing warm meals, it's providing healthcare for folks, it's providing transportation. The dream would be that schools not have to be that where the rest of society is able to kind of help lift up, Um, the entire community so that schools can be in this place of critical thinking and skills acquisition. And, and and it doesn't have to consume so much of a child's well-being. Yeah. Yeah. And and I thought that, listen, I I thought it was both a good thing, but it's also one of those things that I'm like, something is wrong here of the number of schools that during, especially 2020, I I think we're in 2022 now. Of this 21st month of the pandemic, I'm still, my calendar is all the way thrown off. But one of the things I remember is schools saying, you know, we'll still provide a sack lunch or a box lunch for students who need it. And that to me was just like, well, that means that the school is in a lot of cases providing basic nourishment. That to me was just... um, was something else. And in the low those lines, and I don't know if you know this or, or not, we also have a nursing shortage in general. How's that impacting school nurses, especially now when we get COVID? I mean, we've had a shortage of school nurses for much longer than, than COVID. It, it's something that it feels just kind of like a relic of the past to have like a strong <laughs> like little clinic in your school yeah. and, and a nurse that works there. And even if you are a school nurse, you're getting paid significantly less than if you work in a hospital. And so, yeah, that was something that was hurting way before COVID. All right. I want to switch switch gears a little bit and ask, so if I'm a parent listening to this or I'm a lawmaker or what have you, that's why we need vouchers. And, you know, let let the parents choose. Vouchers help or don't help, or what do they actually do? I understand the argument, and it's really tempting, right? If you find a frustration with your local school, 
then let's give you a coupon uh, to your local private school. I, I've got a few. Um, and we, where I work, Georgia Budget and Policy Institute has a longstanding opposition opposition to these policies uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that we do not believe the solution to the sins of the public school. And I am here to say that schools have not done right by everyone. It has been the source of discrimination for generations. But the solution to that is not funding a separate discriminatory system of education where parents might not know that once they take their child out of the public school and go to a private school, if their child has disabilities, they are guaranteed none of the federal rights that they are in public schools. They, the private school does not have to follow the individualized education plan, does not have to follow rules on discrimination against these children. You might not know that you are now sending your child to a school that is legally allowed to kick them out if they're gay. There is a reason that we have a separation of church and state in the United States, and it's so that we do not fund as taxpayers uh, a religion yep. that you might not feel religiously affiliated with. So, th- so that's one part, is that discrimination is not going to save us from discrimination. And second, this is no solution whatsoever for rural Georgia. This idea that like, if there's a problem with your school, go to your local private school, that is a suburban, quote-unquote, solution, and an urban, quote-unquote, solution because our rural legislators know, and I'm saying Democrats and Republicans know that the pillar, one of the pillars of their community is that school. And so if there's a change that needs to happen, it needs to happen in the place where all the kids are attending, not just for whichever lucky parents can drive 30 miles yeah. to, to the academy that was started in you know 1965 so that white parents didn't have to go to school. Segregation academy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And not to mention that there are white parents who, even if they could afford that, are going to feel uncomfortable with that. There are black parents who, even if they could afford that, are uncomfortable with that. So we have this policy in vouchers, which essentially drains money from the local public school in order to maybe benefit some of the most privileged. And we just do not see that as a way forward. We see the way forward is to do right by all kids. I joked with an interviewer last year that if we started to create these protections for the private schools that receive these vouchers, because we have two vouchers operating right now, right? And if we had protections for discrimination based on students with disabilities or for students who are gay, then I I went down the list and I realized I was just creating another public school system. Like why not invest in the system that 90% of all kids in the state of Georgia goes to? Yep instead of kind of creating the separate system, um, because we've seen what that looks like in other states that invest heavily in vouchers, they end up disinvesting in their local public schools in Florida, Indiana, Michigan, Arizona. You see the amount of state investment in the public schools go down as it becomes more acceptable to just give you, you know, a $3,000 coupon to a private school that might cost $12,000 a year. Yeah, and and so if I'm understanding you right, if I get that three thousand dollar coupon and I'm in DeKalb County here in Georgia, then that DeKalb County is now three thousand dollars shorter on their budget, right? For every school, every student that gets a voucher, that that it's not like the state then says, "I'm going to make this up to you, DeKalb County." Okay, and so then that goes back to the custodians and the librarians and what have you. I mean, there's a point of, of hiring 
two librarians, I don't know if it's one, two or three, but let's just go with two, is that it takes 500 kids in an elementary school. Right, right. So you can't now, so now that principal, I guess, has got to make a choice then that we only have one librarian now then, right? Absolutely. The the fixed costs, there are costs that school districts are paying for for 30, 50 years in the future for a new building, for buses. And if you lose five kids to a voucher, you can't turn down the heat in the building five kids worth. You can't cut off five seats of a school bus. You're just... You just have those costs, and it means firing teachers. It means larger class sizes for everyone else. It means less librarians. Like it just, you'll feel it inside the school while we allow for you know kind of this hole in the bathtub. And it also just it lets schools off the hook for not doing right by everyone because that's the other side of it. If that if vouchers is the solution, then it tells schools you don't have to do right by everyone because then it's up to those parents to find a better school versus we need to hold our schools accountable right now to do right by every single child who enters her doors. Yeah. Just before us talking, I ran across an article where the city of Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina, is considering privatizing 23 of its public schools. And, I, and I'm not asking you to, to go into depth about any of that, but is that something that is a trend that I'm not aware of, or is that a, a one-off or that sort of the, the school district saying, look, we, we're going to privatize ourselves or sort of like you outsource trash collection or anything else. I mean, that's that, that to me what, what it sounds like. Yeah, it sounds a lot like that. And while I haven't heard about that in Georgia, I, I worry about what that means for two different areas. Again, one rural Georgia, Right. There are counties in Georgia where half the families don't even have broadband available. Not that they can't afford it, even though that's a completely separate issue. Not even available in their area. So we have this area that's completely privatized, that is being seen more and more as a need. If we can't get broadband to all of Georgia, something a lot of Metro Atlanta has had for years, do we really believe that a company is going to provide like strong services. You know what I mean? Like what company is going to come and like, if, if I'm working at a business that just, I, it doesn't make sense numbers wise <laughs> to yep. privatize specifically in rural communities where you have these huge counties, you might be serving a thousand kids total K through 12. It just does not make financial sense to run that as a business. And separately, the way we think about kids, it, it can get really dangerous if we think about them of how much they cost to educate, because that puts our our low income kids at a disability at, at a disadvantage. Our kids with disabilities. Yep. If we start thinking about like, okay, does it make financial sense for me to educate this child? I feel like we will undo generations of civil rights that have been fought for for kids to be educated in the school. Yeah, 100%. I mean, yes, because if you're a business, there's there's a there's a profit margin that you are beholden to. There's shareholders, there's a board. And even if you say, well, this is a not-for-profit business, there's still a board. There's still the sort of financial incentive that you're going to be measured by if you are a leader of that business, then that's not going to change just because, you know, I have four kids who have, you know, hearing loss and, you know, we have to bring in a, 
a teacher's aide to help them to understand whatever it may be. I, 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 I think it's it's nuts. And that, that isn't to say that there aren't areas that our schools need to learn from the business community. And there's partnerships right now between businesses as far as internships, as far as, yeah, like our school buses. Like there, there are those partnerships within the school. It's just to your point, who are you beholden to? Yep. Is this something we're doing in order to make a profit versus a service that's provided to the community? And that's a fight that's going to continue on for, I imagine, the rest of our lives. Just what does it look like to fund a service, even if it takes 40 percent of the state budget every year because of how many people rely on it? Yeah. So now you are clearly I mean, this is your work, your budget and policy analyst in education and funding in here, Georgia. How did you come to this work? I mean, why, why did you why did you end up here? And I taught at a private school for five years in Asheville, and uh, they were able to pay for me to get my master's in curriculum and instruction. And while there, I realized just how much I didn't know about the education sector, how much I didn't know. And I'd always had a love for policy. And after I finished my master's, realizing that I could marry those things in education and in policy. And so pursued a doctorate at the University of Georgia. While there, I was able to take an internship at the Department of Education and loved my time there. Loved seeing kind of like where I wanted my impact to be. Like, okay, it, I, I need to be at the state level pushing for systemic changes. And so when this position opened up to be a state budget and policy analyst, I jumped at it. And I do, I miss being in the classroom when I talk to current teachers that want to leave the classroom. I always try to give a little bit of a caution because if you move into the policy space, you move from making like a huge impact on individual lives to if we're successful, a tiny impact on a t- millions of people's lives. And that's, but that's my dream is to, to pass a bill that gives more money to students living in poverty. There's a bill right now called House Bill 10. If we could do that, it's not going to radically change any one person's life, but it will make the world just a little less cruel for millions of kids. And House Bill 10 does what? It provides... $343 million to educate students living in poverty. Georgia is one of only eight states in the union that doesn't specifically ed- give money specifically to educate students living in poverty. And in the same way, we have specific buckets for gifted kids, for uh, English learners, students with disabilities. Let's fund this specifically. And, and if it works, then the world has just gotten a little more pleasant. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's important. And, and so wh- while we're there... Because we are in uh, legislative season here in Georgia, and last year we had a lot of fireworks in the in the in the realm of voting, <laughs> which has yes. had a long tail, and will have a long tail certainly through this ele- election cycle and the election cycles to come. But in the area of education, what's on the docket? You mentioned ha- House Bill Ten. What else is being considered, and what may go through, and what may not? So a big part of what we're looking at is going to be in the budget. So Governor Kemp had uh, eggs and issues this morning uh, where he laid out his kind of a general outline of what his goals are for session. As you'll recall, when he ran for governor, he wanted to give teachers a $5,000 pay raise. They were able to do 3000 of that his first year. And it looks like he has the money because we're in a good financial space, space statewide. It looks like he has the money to do 
the remaining $2,000. So we'll see that coming down the pike. I don't think you'll see a lot of resistance to that. Uh, if for no other reason than it's politically very popular yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. to give teachers that pay raise. Yeah. He, he'll also have the money. I don't know if he'll do it, but um, if his budget will include filling in the specific cuts we have right now, the $383 million dollars, And then we'll see, I think, some movement around school counselors, specifically mental health counselors, uh, because there's been a bipartisan push in that area. Those are the goods. The bad things that we'll continue to fight against is bills that that target school districts about around obscene materials. This one is a a little bit of a moving target, but uh, a really powerful Republican, the second most powerful Republican in the House, has a bill or said that she is going to release a bill about um, obscene materials. And there's this fear that it would be similar to other states where you're banning books under the guise of, of parental input that actually really just ends up targeting black authors, LGBTQ authors. There's, so, But we don't really know what that looked like because recently she said maybe it's more about cybersecurity. So I, I, I'm not sure what that's going to look like. And then... Uh, we'll have some bills around either explicitly naming critical race theory or kind of winking at critical race theory as a way to punish schools or districts that, quote unquote, substantially deviate from the curriculum. We've had two bills pre-filed now that will say that say if your school district substantially deviates from the curriculum, then you can have a larger homestead exemption or then you can, you know, maybe sue the school. So I'm, I'm afraid we'll see something like that. But I, I'm not sure how much energy is behind those bills statewide. Yeah, you know, I will say this. We have a governor's election here. The governor of Virginia proudly said during the campaign and afterwards that that whole idea of uh, critical race theory was a you know a big driver, and that's what the citizens of Virginia wanted. And I always wonder when I'm hearing that is that first off, every time I see a school board meeting anywhere in the country, and you know someone asks, "Are you teaching critical race theory?" The answer is always no. It, it, it's always no, right? right. There's a a few law schools in the country that do. I mean, it's something that's right, not happening, right. but. I wonder, like, it, it will be, well, February of every year. What will you say about W.E.B. Du Bois or what will you say about Harriet Tubman if, if there's no critical race theory? And, and, and listen, I don't I, I don't want to take us down that rabbit hole, but I, I think the whole thing is 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 a big loony. It's a bit loony. And, and that's me saying that, not 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 Dr. Owen. So I, I'm right there with you. And, and like. And taking it, yeah, not to spend too much time on it, but even just looking at it practically in what is what are the effects of these sorts of debates? We know that we need more teachers of color yeah. in the classroom. Yes. Uh, uh, is that going to help us recruit like black teenagers and black college students into the classroom or will it hurt us? Because right. we know that like the benefits of having these folks in the classroom and I don't know if uh, our lawmakers are considering just kind of the long-term effects because they might say this is politics as usual, but it will have an effect in the classroom, whether it be how kids feel about themselves, who decides to go into the classroom. And that's something that we cannot 
ignore, we can't always assume that we're going to have a strong teacher workforce that, that's willing to work for the amount of wages that we're paying, specifically teachers of color who might enter into the classroom with more uh, student debt than their white counterparts. Yeah. And, and, and so I will say here, and, and there's a long story or, or precursor to this is that there was a generation of very strong set of teachers of color and black teachers and primarily, and I'm really talking about my mom and relatives of that generation who would have been graduating college in the forties and fifties. And really there just weren't a lot of paths in terms of, of corporate opportunities or what have you. And so many of them became teachers. Right. And there's a generation of students that benefited greatly because of, um, Segregate. There's nothing good about segregation, but if there was anything that was good, is that there was an extremely talented generation of black educators who 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 taught the Kamala Harris's, who taught the Michelle Obamas, who who or what have you, and and so we do need to to bring in more teachers of color. And I will tell you this is in 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 this and when I say that certainly black teachers, but I would say Latino or what have you. And I thought about this was in a totally separate stream of thought is that when we were covering what was happening on the, on the border, it was a gap in terms of the number of news reporters who were actually Latino or actually Mexican or actually had family from Central America. So there was a, a cultural gap in the reporting and that there, there weren't enough people who actually knew the language firsthand and knew the culture firsthand and what have you to do that. And so, listen, we need everyone. I, I think this is a case where all lives matter. We really do need to make sure that we have more black and brown teachers. That's so, that's so important. And it's something that I saw somebody mentioned that on Twitter that we, if we have a, a media landscape, that really strives hard to get both sides of a story, sometimes to a detriment, right? Yeah. <laughs> but really strives hard to get, I feel like the story of critical race theory has been told exclusively in white spaces. Yeah. And the fact that we don't, we're not hearing what are the experiences of black and brown children? Like, what is it like to be Asian American and, yes. and, and feeling like you're completely erased from any discussion whatsoever about race? because it's told in a black white narrative. What's it like to be black growing up in a County called Jeff Davis named after a terrorist that fought to enslave your ancestors. Yeah. How, how would that conversation not being had in this full discussion of, okay, as a state, how do we handle race and history, which I think is a necessary conversation. It just needs to include more Georgians than maybe just the loudest. Yep. No, I, I, I certainly agree with that here, here. So, as we as we round out and come to a close, I found you or came across you on TikTok. That's right. And, and I've got to say that the first time I think I saw your first one, maybe was a, it was a video that you or clip that you did at the Georgia State House. It might have been the one that you were talking about in this in this discussion about school buses. I can't school bus drivers and their pay or what have you. But I have to say, first off, thank you. I think it's super effective in terms of taking really complex issues and and narrowing it down into a bite-sized chunk that that 
laymen or parents can can digest it. But but how long have you been doing that? Since this summer, my thought is like I work for a a well funded research and policy advocacy organization. Yeah, but there are so many people that want to speak into policy in Georgia that just don't have an easy avenue. You know, our legislative session is only 40 days when we pass $30 billion budget. I mean, there's just so much crammed into that. And so I, one of my dreams is just kind of flatten the process, just like what you said, make it as easy to understand as possible. Cause I know we got a lot of demands on our time. Yeah. And so making those little videos, just kind of explaining one or two areas is my hope of just so people don't have to in the future rely on places like my place of work in order to change the system so that people can have a voice. And and yeah, you're one you, you mentioned about the one at the Capitol uh, for, for your listeners. That's that was a reference to just how many like segregationists and slaveholders are uh, memorialized at the Capitol, but we don't have a cat. We don't have a statue for my favorite Georgian, Tunis Campbell, who's probably the father of public education in Georgia. His story is absolutely amazing. We we need to. His name needs to be all over our Capitol, but there, his likeness is not in the Capitol. He doesn't have a statue, and uh, and there's a lot of other Black Georgians in the same spot who've contributed to the society we have today versus. We have the head of the KKK sitting on a horse, sitting right outside the Capitol. But it's hard to hard to swallow. Yeah, Governor Thomas and the, yeah others, and so I, you know, that whole thing is is that it's not just who we choose to honor; it's also who we're, who are we not honoring at the absolutely time. So it's it's a both. One of the things and questions as we close that we ask everyone is on the uh, parlay in all blue is what does it mean to live well. I think about this a lot because I had so much ambition uh, and still do to a certain effect, but becoming a parent has completely changed so much of that that I, I had this idea of, you know, kind of driving as hard as I can to professional success. But now if you tell me that uh, I, I've got uh, one child of my own, two foster kids in the family, if, if you tell me at the end of the life that they're flourishing, that they are living at peace with their neighbors, that they are uh, making the world more beautiful than they found it, then, then I felt like I have lived a full and happy life just being a, a part of this family and getting to contribute to them. So that would have to be a big part of my answer. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. And, and parenting is a is a is a great prioritizer. <laughs> I think <laughs> it, sure is. it certainly set set the uh, agenda. And we'll end with this. Uh, and we started with UGA in a big win. Couple of UGA football questions. Yeah. Favorite UGA player of all time? <sighs> I mean, Herschel Walker's got to be in anyone's. Yeah. You know, they, he's on the Mount Rushmore for yeah. if so nothing else. So, so not named Herschel Walker because that, <laughs> okay. that that would be that's that's almost too easy. Yeah, no, that's absolutely Roquan Smith, you uh, know, yeah, like yeah. defensive back who now yeah. plays for the Bears, I believe. Yeah. I just absolutely love it. and then Nick Chubb. I mean, those are the two guys that like I know they didn't win a national championship, but both of those guys are gonna be in my heart forever. Nick Chubb coming back for his senior year, he just seems like he seems like, you know, my generation's Herschel Walker too, and the way that he carries himself and yeah, I think those two guys specifically are gonna be they're going to be on my Mount Rushmore of UGA uh, players. 
So I would assume that you that that the national championship game was one of the highlights of being a Georgia football fan. What was the what was the heartbreak? Which team or which play or which game was probably perhaps the biggest heartbreak? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, there's really big ones like the SEC championship in 2012, like losing the national championship in 2016. But I'll tell you, there was a game when I was a student uh, in 2000. Oh, gosh, it was been about 2005 where Georgia lost to Tennessee at the last second. And I was like painted in all red with a letter on my chest with my friend standing next to me. It started raining. It was like the end of a bad movie. Just like how sad I felt at that time. Those sorts of losses will get you to reevaluate your fandom. (laughs) Why am I investing this much of my emotional energy in this? But yeah, that loss to Tennessee, I'll never forget how I felt after that. Yeah, no, listen, hey, um, there's nothing rational about fandom. My school, we had a great season. And then, listen, I woke up Saturday morning for the Celebration Bowl here in Atlanta. And and listen, I was as cocky as all get out. (laughs) And and South Carolina State comes in and gives it to us. And and I'm sitting here, I'm like, you know, this is a week before Christmas and I'm healthy and (laughs) – you know, that's right, that's the right. Wi-Fi is on, but I'm I'm just all dejected. So anyway, I get it. And congratulations on the on the big win. And I want to thank you for taking the time here. I know you got a lot on your plate and it's a lot of important work. And uh, I want to thank you again for sharing it on TikTok and sharing the time with us. So we appreciate having you on the parlay in all blue. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. Everybody else stay stay on for a little bit. All right. I'm out. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. Follow us or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.